Good morning. All right, the reading for today is from Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, Arcadia. Great to see you. If uh, you're new, and if you're not new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been working our way through this 22-week series called We Want a King. We're in the, we're in the life of David right now, but Saul is still involved, as we uh, can see, and uh, after next week, it'll be strictly David for several weeks, and then eventually we'll get into Solomon. I have one other sort of announcement, uh, or just a reminder uh, before we get started. Um, some of you know, maybe, uh, for the last 11 months, every Tuesday morning in this room, uh, for, from 6.30 to 7, we just read scripture out loud. And we've been through the Gospels, we've been through the Prophets, we've been through the Psalms, and... Uh, we started, uh, by, by the way, when I say we, it's usually me, unless I'm out of town or in surgery, then it's our, our pastoral resident, Zach Hines, who reads. But every Tuesday morning, we just read scripture. Very little, if any, commentary. We're just trying to read through the entire Bible every two or three years. But uh, a few months ago, we started in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And we have now gone through Genesis and Exodus. And on this coming Tuesday, in two days, we're going to start Leviticus, which is really exciting. So if you want to know about what the Bible says about hair and about skin and about loving your neighbor, you should come and listen to Leviticus because it's, it's uh, unbelievable. So anyway, just wanted to mention that. I know half of you probably aren't even up by 6.30, but that's okay. I get that. So, um, so here we go. We're, we're in this series. We're looking primarily at 1 Samuel 24 today, where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't take it. We're going to work through that. There's going to be some... Uh, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit uh, in the second half of the message in the New Testament as well. So if you have your Bibles open or your apps, just be ready to, to move quickly if you want to follow along. Otherwise, everything will be up on the screen for you. Uh, but a little bit of review as we get in there. And then we have to also summarize chapter 23, which is a chapter that we're missing um, because we ended with 22 last week. So uh, what we know right now is that David, who has been anointed as the next king once Saul is gone, but Saul is still king, so there's tension there. 
David has proven that, that he is a great leader and he's a tremendous asset both to Saul and to God's people, the nation of Israel. But all that's done for Saul is make him angry at David. He feels threatened. He's got issues with pride and security and envy and all that stuff. And so it makes him mad enough that he decides he just needs to kill David. And he's tried several times relentlessly to do this. And that's one of the things we looked at last week in chapters 18 through 22. And this whole exercise of Saul trying to kill David keeps backfiring on Saul, but he persists. You would think he would learn, but he persists, and it just keeps getting him more and more angry. And we saw last week in chapter 22 that Saul finally became so frustrated with trying to assassinate David that in his paranoia, which this has caused as well, he takes out his frustration by murdering 85 priests at the sanctuary city of Nob. And then he goes in and sends his army in and destroys the city of Nob. And those are his own people that he's now destroying. It, it, this is, these are not an enemy of Israel. He's taking it out on his own people now. So he's, he's clearly off the rails. So today in chapter 24, we have another record of Saul trying to kill David. And what we see is kind of the beginning of the end for Saul. And as we work through this, uh, generally speaking, in, during this series, because it's mostly narrative, there's application along the way. So th there will be some scripture and then some life application and scripture and life application. And then eventually we'll get to the end and we'll have one big point of application. And that'll be the pattern we follow, follow again. But before we get to 24, let's review that chapter we skipped, 23. David continues to run from Saul, but even on the run, David has 600 soldiers with him now that he didn't recruit. They're just people that defected from Saul to David. And, and these 600 soldiers led by David continue to fight battles on behalf of Israel and Saul, even though Saul wants to kill David. It's just the weirdest thing. And they, and they continue to serve Saul, even as Saul gets madder and madder and wants to kill uh, David. And especially they are uh, waging war against the Philistines, the primary worldly enemy of the Israelites. And in some perverse way, like I said, this aggravates Saul all the more. And so he intensifies his kerfuffle with David. And in the meantime, Jonathan, Saul's son, continues to side with David as they remain close friends, which only ratchets up Saul's resentment even more. And as the second half of chapter 23 wraps up, it becomes almost comical. You read this, and, and at least for me, you just kind of have to start laughing at the way David keeps eluding Saul it, 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 and it just, I'm a movie guy, so it reminds me of that Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive, where he was just constantly one step ahead of Tommy Lee Jones. And, and it's like it's, uh, David is playing, uh, playing that part here. So finally, David settles on hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, this is about 35 miles south, southeast of Jerusalem, very near the Dead Sea, Nothing is around there. He's there because nobody else would really want to be there. It's not, a, it's not a great place to be. It is known as a wilderness. And I will tell you, as you stop and think about how the wilderness is used in Scripture, you, you, this just seems fitting to me that David is in the wilderness. Have you ever stopped to think about 
all the people that God uses in profound ways in the Bible and how many of them at one point, either at the beginning or sometime in the midst of their serving God, had to have a wilderness experience. They had to, they had to be set apart alone, suffering. They, they had to be outcast. They had to be in exile. They had to be a, a remnant. You start to think about it. Moses had a 40-year wilderness experience. Anybody here in the middle of a 40-year wilderness experience? Okay. Moses had a 40, <laughs> 40-year wilderness experience. There's Elijah. His came in the midst of a magnificent uh, ministry. There's David. David has his wilderness experience. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, before he could really serve, he spent three years just trying to figure things out alone in the wilderness. And I, I don't know if there's... Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 years days as well. So, here you go. Have you ever felt the sting of being in the wilderness? Wondering why God has isolated you? Only to discover later, only to discover later that God was actually preparing you for something while you were in the wilderness? Have you had relationship wilderness? Economic wilderness? Spiritual wilderness? Educational wilderness? I, I know most of we have a big contingency at GCU, so I guess not many of you have suffered educational wilderness unless you're somewhere else. But anyway, there's all these different wildernesses that we experience. And what we need to remember is that God, you read scripture, God always seems to work best through those kinds of situations, through desolation, through exile, through affliction, and through what we believe is intolerable. That's when God really stands up and works. Well, the wilderness is where we pick up the story in chapter 24. I'll reread what Nick read for us, and then we'll unpack that a little bit. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Yes, I'm assuming it was a very large cave. And the men of David said to David, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Saul takes 3,000 men out against David's 600, and notice they were chosen men. So these aren't just some random 3,000. He put together the very best 3,000 warriors that he could find. And still, I would just, I mentioned this before, I, I would just argue that at some point, Saul should really know better than to do this. It's odd that both David and Saul already know that God's plan is to make David the king after Saul's reign, so 
why does Saul bother with this? Why does Saul waste so much time on this I gotta kill David endeavor? And I'll just say it again. Pride and insecurity, my brothers and sisters, pride and insecurity, those vices will make us do foolish things. And Saul is suffering from a very large dose of both. So I would argue better than a Hollywood screenplay, Saul slips into the very cave where David and his men are hiding so that Saul can relieve himself. And David's men really want David to just end this thing. They encourage him to kill Saul. And they interpret, on David's behalf, this saying from God that you just need, this is your opportunity, let's get rid of Saul. They also knew, the men also knew, there was a practical reason that they wanted to do this. They knew that if David killed Saul, Saul's men would just give up in order to keep the peace and then help uh, initiate the transition into David's reign. That's, it would be like, Saul's gone, the 3,000 men aren't going to fight, let's just move on with David as king. But David is not so sure about this interpretation, so he cuts off, he sneaks Saul, cuts off a piece of his cloak, and, and the question has to be, well, why? Why did he did, do that? And so we looked into that. There are a few reasons that are proposed. I especially like reasons one and three, but you can make up your own mind on this. Number one, metaphorically, a cloak uh, has been used to describe a kingdom, and so by cutting a corner of the cloak off, it's, it's, it's just a way of communicating that the kingdom of Israel is broken right now because of this Saul and David tension. So it's a picture of the brokenness that's going on in the kingdom. Second, of way, second, second reason was it's an honorable way to de defeat your enemy in battle, to sneak him before you kill him. It's like a war game of some sort. Now this sort of thing didn't always happen, but it was something that did occur from time to time. It, it, was, it was a way of demonstrating your prowess at war games. And then number three, most likely, this is the one I probably would settle on, it's because David is just not sure he wants to kill Saul yet, and if there's an opportunity later, th him cutting the piece of uh, the cloak off would prove to Saul that he had a chance to kill him, but he didn't kill him. And that might carry some weight with Saul. And that, of course, is exactly what ends up happening. So it eventually seemed good to David that he should not lay a hand on the king, on God's anointed, even though David was also anointed the king in waiting. And really, especially after last week, chapter 2, Saul pretty much deserved to be whacked. But, but, but David holds off. He decides instead to trust God with the timing and process of Saul's end of his reign. He decides to trust God. With it. This takes incredible faith, incredible patience, incredible perseverance. Here you go. David knows that Saul is his enemy, and yet he refuses to treat Saul like his enemy. He knows he's his enemy, but he doesn't treat him like his enemy. Does that sound like any New Testament passages some of you might be familiar with? Maybe Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, something like that. See, see we, we need to understand... Forgiving Saul and not treating him like an enemy is not selling out. So many people hear that idea of, of loving your enemies, of doing good for your enemies, and, and they just, oh, that you're just selling out. No, it's not selling out. It's trusting God's faith and justice over and above your faith and justice, my faith and justice. 
That's not really easy to do. I understand that. But that's what God calls us to do. God says in several places in Scripture, vengeance is mine. And that's exactly what David is doing. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32. David knows the Torah, and he knows that he needs to trust God for his timing, for his process, and for his justice. But also, David didn't just leave it there. After he tells his men that he won't kill Saul, then he follows Saul out of the cave in order to have a little convo with him. And so we look at verses 8 through 12. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul. My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the, to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now consider verse 8. This is not just a story about David sparing Saul. For some reason, in that moment, Saul also spared David. David bows down to pay him homage, but also clearly exposes his neck. And Saul is really good with a sword. We know that. He could have just with one flick ended David's life right there. But he chooses not to. Chooses not to. He spares David's life. And so when David gets Saul's attention, the first thing he does is he says, here's what's happening. I'm going to plead my case before you. And, and this is paraphrased, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, Saul, why are you believing all this hearsay about me? Why are you listening to all these other people but not coming to me and asking me about it? Again, the New Testament shadows in there. Matthew chapter 18. He says, you know, God gave me this opportunity to take you out, but I decided to spare your life. Here's proof that I could have taken you out. Here's part of your cloak. And then he says, I, I've never sinned against you, and you know it, and yet you seek to kill me. Come on, king, you're riding the wrong horse here. And very clearly, part of what David is saying is that he didn't kill Saul, even though Saul certainly deserves it. And then notice Saul's language again, leaving it to God in verse 12. Let me reread it. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be against you. Again, Deuteronomy 32, 35, the Lord says, I will avenge. And then you look in the, in the New Testament. You go to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, and here's what Paul writes with Deuteronomy 32 on his mind, I imagine. He says, pay no one, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, so far, David's done all of this. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there's one little part of that passage that David, that uh, Paul writes that I feel like needs a little bit of explanation because, you know, if, if you just treat your enemies nice, eventually God's going to put burning coals on their head. Isn't that cool? So I can't wait until those burning coals come, come out of heaven, you know, and drop on my enemy like that. That's not what Paul is saying. There, there was a custom in, in first century Greco-Roman Israel uh, world around the Mediterranean where if you sinned against somebody in a town... And, and God works on your conscience, and you begin to realize that you need to repent of your sin, the way that you would let the entire community know that you know that you have sinned against a brother or sister, and you need to ask for forgiveness, and you're repenting of your sin, you would fill a pan with coals, light them on fire, put them on your head, and you would walk around in the community. It was a way of letting people know, I'm repenting of my sin, I was wrong. It, you know... The kindness of God leads to repentance. Have you heard that verse also? See, this is what, this is what David is getting at. Okay, So don't, don't think, I'm going to just get some hot coals and throw them at them. All right. And again, I, I want to hit this again. We need to understand, and I, I know this is hard. It, it's not just hard for you. It's really hard for me too. We need to understand that loving enemies is not passive. It's not selling out in our realization that an injustice has occurred, but rather it is active and it shows trust in God, in his goodness, and in his justice, but by his timing and his process. And I mean, look at, just look at the example of Jesus loving us. Paul writes in Romans 5, For while we were enemies of God, God reconciled us to him through the death of his son. And then later in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is an active loving your enemies that Jesus shows us and gave everything for. So here's how this encounter ends, starting with verse 16. And the king said to David, you shall... Sh nope. Sorry. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul... Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Is, is this you telling me that you have spared my life? It's, again, a, a rhetorical device to say it that way. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? That's a rhetorical question. No, of course not. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you will surely, shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then an interesting way this ends. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. They didn't go home. So Saul acknowledges that everything that David says is true. Saul appears to be humbled. 
He appears to be contrite, and he is in that moment. And Saul also appears to be okay with David being the next king, though he would rather it be one of his sons. As we shall see later, this does actually become a challenge in the transition. Not later today, but later in the series. This becomes a challenge in the transition to David as king. But one reason Saul feels okay in the moment with David being the next king is that David promises two things to Saul. As king, David will always take care of Saul's family and descendants, and David does that. And then second, David will honor Saul's name and reign always. I think it's fair to say that even though David has been anointed as king, David is operating as though he knows that the Lord is king. That's the key to all of this. But there's two more things. Let me just reread that verse 22. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's interesting. Even though Saul relents, David clearly does not trust Saul going forward. David didn't go back to the city. Instead, he took his men and went back to their stronghold. Uh, He's forgiven Saul, but he also knows that Saul is not stable, And he should not put himself in a position willingly where Saul will eventually and could eventually and does eventually change his mind and decide to kill David. He forgives him. Saul is his king. All of that is true. But David is also saying, I don't know that we should be around Saul. Let's Let's just get out of his way until his reign is over and then God will allow things to happen that need to happen. And so... The other thing is that even though in this encounter Saul says he won't pursue David anymore, Saul goes after David again and again and again and again. And, and, and if you, we're not going to read chapter 26 next week, but chapter 26 is like a mirror of chapter 24. It's a different story altogether. It's a different time altogether of Saul trying to kill David or David. Uh, Uh, not killing Saul when he had the opportunity, but nevertheless, it's a mirror of that. So what we need to remember from this is that pride and and insecurity are strong and relentless. Strong and relentless. It's been said that when you forgive somebody, especially if something pretty significant, you got to forgive every morning when you wake up. You don't just forgive them and then it's over. you got to forgive every morning when you wake up. Sometimes you got to forgive... Every hour that you're awake during the day, that forgiveness is just this repetitive process. But, but the other side of that is every morning when we wake up feeling insecure and arrogant, that becomes the, the rubric over which guides the rest of our day, and that becomes a problem. So here's Saul going to bed. He doesn't wake up and forgive David. He doesn't wake up and think, I'm, I'm okay. I'm in a secure place. I shouldn't be afraid. My pride keeps getting in the way. Instead, he wakes up and he starts to entertain those thoughts of David being a threat to him again. And then that begins to guide his day, and it's a problem. So my hope for you and me is that we can, in Christ, recognize that, like Saul, we can fall prey to these vices and do very foolish things. So here's how I want to wrap up this story. Uh, As I think about Saul and read about Saul, it it just struck me a few weeks ago, Saul had so much going for him, right? Let me just list the things, okay? He was smart. He wasn't wise, but he was smart. 
That should have given him a head start on wisdom, but he never quite got to wisdom. He was still putting tomatoes in fruit salad, so <laughs> his pride and insecurity kept getting in the way of that. Pride and insecurity will get, get in the way of wisdom. There are many people who are really, really smart, but they just can't seem to operate with wisdom. So he was smart. He was also a physical force and presence. The Bible continues to describe him that way. Also, when Saul started out, the Lord was with him. The Lord had shown him favor. Saul also had worldly resources and people who were loyal to him. He had a faithful and devoted mentor in Samuel, and he had a loyal next in line in David, who was always working hard to serve and protect Saul, even as Saul became embittered against David. And, and finally, Saul had the word of God. He had the law of God. He had the history of God's people all at his fingertips and on his lips. So here you go. Here's how Saul started his reign. Smart, physical presence. God was with him. He had people and resources with him, and he had God's word. How does someone who enjoys such an incredible foundation with such an incredible head start blow it like Saul? I think by now you should know the answer. I've been saying it for this entire message. I said, I said it last week. I hammered, it away. I hammered away on it on Wednesday night during the Kingdom, Kingdom's Companion series. It's pride and insecurity, and those two are... I can't even think when they're not married, okay? Pride and insecurity. So let's talk a little bit about what C.S. Lewis has to say about pride. Pretty good theologian. Pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. It is the essential vice, the utmost evil. It is the sin that first caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. It is the one sin through which all other sin is manifest. Lewis goes on to say that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up every possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. In other words, pride always leads to foolishness, so you could say that pride is also an anti-wisdom state of mind. By the way, if you haven't, read Mere Christianity. It's really helpful, and it's the most accessible, I believe, of all of Lewis's books. Very by, by accessible, I mean just about anybody can read it. I went to North High School. I read it so you can read it, okay? <laughs> but then what does Scripture say about pride? Okay, Proverbs 16, 8, pride goes before destruction. You want to ensure your destruction? Get, just get really, really proud. Okay? James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus talks a little bit about this, too, in Mark chapter 7. Verses 20 through 23. And Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, which is rooted in insecurity, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, there it is, and foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile the person. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one that's the antidote to this. Here you go. I'll, I'll read this too. First, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes to Timothy. This is about 63 A.D. 
But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. You get to the abusive one, and that's just Saul. And and he was disobedient, in a sense, to his spiritual parents as well, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. I could go off for 40 minutes on that. On that word, unappeasable, unable to be satisfied, unable to find contentment. That's our culture today. Nobody's appeased, nobody's satisfied, nobody's content. We don't know how to do that. We're just looking for that next fix, whatever that fix might be. We are unappeasable. We're slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, Here you go, the key line here. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Are you feeling really built up on Sunday morning, my brothers and sisters? Okay, we're going to get there, don't worry. That's a warning from Paul to Timothy and to us. And notice in both of those passages, Jesus's and Paul's, the attributes of pride and insecurity. And also notice that much of what Saul did When it was wrong and evil, he almost always justified it. Saul always justified what he did by being under the cover of God, under the guise of God, when in fact it was not. Saul believed he had the appearance of godliness, but he denied its power. He denied its power. And so then, what is true godliness? What is missing when it comes to true godliness? I believe this is actually a question of identity because Scripture speaks to this very specifically. In our culture, you know, even in the church, it seems like everyone is obsessing about identity and identity politics. How we identify ourselves, whatever that is, in fact, has become a false god, an idol. And this is just our current form of idolatry. One of the ironies is that the etymology, the origin of the word politic means how a person lives as a citizen in their community and what we place our identity in becomes that politic. Wherever we find our identity, that's how we manifest, how we live as a citizen in our community. So identity is important. So when we come to Jesus, if you're in Christ, you're you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower, When we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we are literally told in Scripture to put him on, to put Jesus on. Who we are, our very identity, becomes that of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 2, that when we take on Jesus, we are buried with him so that we are also raised to walk with him in new life and in faith. That's also in the book of Romans as well. And that is our identity. Our identity is first and foremost, primarily, supremely in Christ. That should be the very first thing that identifies who we are. And because our identity comes by putting on Jesus... That's where godliness comes from. It comes from Jesus. It's not something that we manifest. It's not something that we conjure up. 
When we seek to find our identity in any other thing, we may think it is a form of godliness. And in a way it is, because whatever we put our identity in is actually our God. It is our idol. So it's a form of godliness, but it has absolutely no power unless it's the one and only God, and that is Jesus Christ. Saul's biggest problem was that he had a form of godliness, and he believed that he was godly, but it wasn't really the Lord. It was his own notion of power, status, and desire, which was all driven by his pride and insecurity. And like every other identity we fool around with in this world, it failed Saul because it does not have the power of God. It does not have the power of the resurrected Christ. It doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have God's wisdom. Saul had so much going for him, but he blew it because he decided that his own idea of, de- of identity was better than God's. And I hope we can see what a mistake that is and realize what a great gift Jesus is for us. Amen. Our gracious and holy God, we pray that we would just put on Jesus, that we would welcome the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we would that we would pick up our cross every single day and do what we need to do by the power of the resurrected Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit to deny ourselves and just follow you. God, let us us aspire to be followers of Jesus and not of our own desires, not of our flesh. Help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So time for reflection response. We're going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to take communion together. If our communion servers would come forward. If you're in Christ, if you claim Christ as your Savior, this is a sacred time. It's a, it, it, is, it is something that we as Christ followers do when we gather virtually every Sunday together. Paul said as, as As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again, and that's what we do now. Jesus said when he broke the bread with his disciples, he said, this is my body and it's given for you. He's, He's foreshadowing the cross. And then he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And it's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus says, do these things in remembrance of me. And so when we step into that aisle and come down here for the elements, we are confessing that we need a Savior and we are celebrating that we have one. So as you come, come in celebration for the salvation you have, the eternal life you have with Christ. Come singing if you're ready to sing, if the Holy Spirit is leading you to that. Eventually when you get back to your seat, Hopefully, if you can, you'll stand and you'll sing the rest of the songs with us and we'll worship together. And then Tyler will come and give us our benediction.
We only want you. We only want you. We only want you. I'm caught up in your praise. just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy. I never want to leave. Oh, I'm not here for blessing. You don't owe me anything more than anything that you can do. I just want you. Jesus, draw me closer. 
some parting words to consider as we go from here into our weeks from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go in that peace, church. Live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.